My name is Robert Cavolo, and I am uh, a pastor here at Christ Church, associate pastor. And if I had a, haven't had a chance to meet you yet, um, I just want to say welcome. We're glad you're here and so glad that you chose to worship with us today. Uh, in her book, Quiet, The Hidden Power of Introverts, Susan Cain makes the case that although our society oftentimes seems to think of extroversion in terms of achievement, in fact, there are many, many introverts who've accomplished quite a bit. Uh, you have people like Einstein was an introvert, Rosa Parks was an introvert, uh, George Lucas from Star Wars, right? Introvert. Uh, Queen Elizabeth II, introvert. And so the point is, is that uh, these were all people who were known more for their actions than their word count. We're going through a series called A Year with Jesus, which is really through the gospel of Mark, okay? And really the whole point of going through the series is so that we can develop a deeper relationship with Jesus. And, uh, you know, the gospel of Mark um, might very well be the gospel for introverts. It is the shortest gospel. It, it, it doesn't have a lot of words, right? Uh, but what it lacks in word count, it makes up for in action, the word that is constantly uh, said over and over in the Gospel of Mark is the word euthus in the Greek, which means immediately, immediately, immediately. You'll see it today. You see it in today's text. And so it's really a fast-paced kind of account where Jesus is revealed not so much by what he says, but by what he does. Now, I like to think about the different Gospels, the four Gospels, in terms of like uh, major motion pictures, all right? So if you think of it in terms of like films, Matthew is a lot like a historical documentary. You know, you have uh, Matthew kind of documenting Jesus's life and how everything he's doing throughout his life lines up with all these promises in the Old Testament. So it's like a historical documentary. Luke is a lot like a biopic, you know, a biography kind of thing where it's like, like on Napoleon or whatever. It's like a story of the life of Jesus. And so Luke takes us all the way back before Jesus is born. And then he has all those narratives about the baby Jesus. And then there's the story about Jesus as a child. And then even after his death, he has so much on the resurrection. He has Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. He has Jesus doing a Bible study with the disciples going through the Old Testament. And Luke even takes it through to the ascension, the only gospel that gives us the ascension. And then if you think about John, I would say that John is a lot like a mystery film. You know, Jesus has all of these kind of sayings, these clues that you've got to put together. You know, I am the vine. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection. You know, we've got them all over here. We've got all the I am sayings here. Which one I miss? I'm the bread, resurrection, light of the world. Okay, you know, I, I, am, I am the door. You know, he's got all these sayings. And, and they're clues that you're meant to put together so you can figure it out that who Jesus is. He's the great I am, Right? Matter of fact, you read John, this is at the end, you know, after the seventh I am, he says, I, we're looking for Jesus, I am he, and the, they fall back. That was a cue for you to get that he is the I am, okay? But if we think about Mark as a motion picture, it's an action film, right? It's an action film. Jesus is constantly doing stuff. It's this fast-paced journey to the cross where Jesus is going to reveal who he is by what he does, and the key text in the Gospel of Mark is Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what I'm here doing. And so Mark is the gospel for the kinesthetic learner. Those of you who are athletes, those of you who, you know, you get it by doing stuff, Mark is the gospel for you. It's the gospel for introverts. It's the gospel that shows us 
that our actions are important. And it's where we're going to see in our passage today that Jesus demonstrates his identity primarily through his action. Now, uh, let me kind of, you know, start with where we've been to kind of get a running start here. In chapter one, as we've been going over the last three weeks, we've seen that Jesus' ministry has absolutely blown up, okay? I mean, it's just blown up. He is teaching unlike anybody has ever taught before with authority, and he's doing all these amazing miracles. And so people are starting to flock. There's this electricity in the air. It says in 128, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And then we also saw that he goes into the house of Simon Peter, and Simon Peter's mother-in-law is there, and he heals his mother-in-law. And then it says that he went out, and by the door, the whole town came. It says, the whole city was there, gathered together at the door, and he healed many. And then the next morning, we saw that, you know, he has to get up early so he can have a little bit of introvert time. You introverts are like, oh, I'm understanding Jesus in a new way today. You like that, honey? Anyways, um, you know, he has to get up early. And he's got some time with the father. And then when, when they find him, like, where are you? Everybody's looking for you. And he's like, you know what? This is becoming crazy. It's blowing up too much. Let's go over to some other towns in Galilee because I came here to preach, not to create a circus. And so that's what he does. I came here to preach. And so he goes throughout Galilee. But then in Mark chapter 2, that's where we pick it up. It says this. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days... It was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he preached the word to them. So he's back. He's back, right? Picture the scene. Jesus gets back in Capernaum to his home base. That's where he's operating out of. It appears to be he was staying at Peter's house, you know, and he gets back to his home base, and he begins teaching, but as soon as word kind of spreads that he's back at Peter's house, it's like the whole city just moves into action and multitudes start feeling Peter's house. I'm sure it was standing room only. And there were people hanging out of the windows. There were people that were filled out to the doors. I mean, you couldn't even get close. You know, they were, I don't know how many deep, 10, 20, I don't know. Anywhere you could hear Jesus, anywhere you could see Jesus, people would take that little spot. So that's the situation. All just trying to get a glimpse of Jesus. And while they're all sitting there enraptured, listening to Jesus teach in a way they'd never heard before, they come. Who are they? Well, this is what it says. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So the text tells us that there's four men that come bringing a paralytic, okay? They heard about Jesus, they heard he's back in town, and they, they try to get it all together. They've got to carry this guy, and you know, I bet people were running, people got there before them. By the time they get there, they're too late. We're going to find that out. But here they are, these four men, this troop and this paralytic, they're coming, and we don't know, we don't know much about these, paraly- about these men. You know, we, we, we don't, it doesn't say really who they are. It doesn't say about their relationship. But what we do know is we do know what the life would be like for a paralytic in the first century. And we know it would be a living hell. We know that he couldn't walk, so this paralytic can't get a job. We know that because he can't get a job, he doesn't have any money and he can't provide for somebody, so he can't get married. And if he can't get married, he can't have a family. And if he can't have a family, well, he can't have a legacy. And in that culture, that means that he's already dead. He's a walking dead man. Or actually, he's not walking, he's a living dead man. 
So, uh, you know, imagine that situation there, okay? And imagine what it must have been like for those men as they are carrying that paralytic to Jesus, and they get there, and then just kind of like the feeling kind of sunk as they start looking at the windows, so they look at the door, and they realize, we didn't make it. You know, that moment of disappointment, like when you're late to something, and you're not going to get in. And so they're sitting there looking, but then... <laughs> One of them gets a little smile on his face, and he gets like, I have an idea. And he looks at the other guys, and he nods to the stairs. You see, back then, houses had stairs on the outside of, of the house, and the reason they did that is because the roofs were not just roofs. The roofs were actually another living space. These roofs were hardy. You know, they had these giant beams that would go across, and then they had sticks going the other way, and then they put thatch like a straw, and then they would take mud about two or three inches deep, and they'd roll that mud so it became this very stable spot. And so you would oftentimes entertain guests up on your roof. It was like a deck. I can imagine Peter and his family probably sat up on that deck and enjoyed the breeze coming off of the, the Sea of Galilee in an evening. You know, sometimes if it was too hot in the house, you might go up there and sleep up on that roof. And so they go ahead and they take that guy up the roof and then there's start, you know, there's probably a STEM guy, you know, at least one JPL person in there who's starting to measure it all out. Okay, Jesus is right here, okay? If we get a hole right about here, we'll bring him right down in front of him, okay? Now, if you're like me, I mean, I like constructing things. If you're, you know, a, a DIY person right now, you have to ask these questions like, how big was the hole, Okay. How did they do this? Did they open it just enough so they could slide him down, you know? Uh, not head first, that would be terrifying. I'm guessing feet first. Or did they open it enough to where, you know, actually they can, actually he can just go in laying down? We don't know. It doesn't give us those details, okay? But we do know is that they are able to bring him down in there, uh, into the midst of that group. Now, now, let's switch places. Let's go down inside the building for a minute, Okay. Imagine what it's like for these people that are down inside that building. And there's there, and it's standing room only, and they're paying attention to Jesus, and Jesus is up there teaching, and they're enraptured, and then suddenly they start hearing some pounding on the roof, okay? And then, and then some little stuff is starting to fall from the roof, and you're trying to pay attention to Jesus. You don't want to be rude, but you know what? What the heck is going on up there? And you, see, and you start looking, and pretty soon it's getting louder and getting louder. And, and pretty soon, I, I know, it's maddening when you're, you're speaking and you've lost the attention of a crowd. I'm guessing what Jesus did is he just stopped. And he just looked up. And everyone's looking up. And pretty soon you see this, this light come through as if something gets ripped up, some of that thatch and that, that sticks. The next thing you know, there's this beam of light, and everybody's looking. And pretty soon this guy gets dropped. He gets dropped right down. And he's going by, Jesus, right? And as he's going by, I'm sure he's like, hi, Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus like, hey. And they lay him down right there. What a situation. And I have no doubt. Uh, well, I have a little doubt, but I'm guessing that if that was my house, we might have had some members of Peter's family be like, what are you doing? Don't rip the roof up. You people are crazy. This, this has got out of control. Our house is getting destroyed. You know, I'm sure they got some, I'm sure there's some like, what in the world? We're trying to listen to Jesus, you guys. Why are you ripping the roof up? Don't tear the roof up. And there's those guys and they're like, coming down. You see these little heads looking down as they're lowering him. Man, that was something else. You know, 
I said earlier that we don't know really anything about these four men, but we do know something about these four men. We know that they loved this man. We know that. We know that they really loved this paralytic. We don't know if he was family. We don't know if this was a a brother or a son or a father or an uncle. We don't know if he was a neighbor that they had grown up next to. We don't know if it was a friend that they'd had. We don't know, but we know that they loved this man. And they wanted to get him to Jesus because they knew that was his only hope, that he's the living dead. And I said that we don't know much about the paralytic. He didn't have much going for him. We know that. He really had nothing going for him except for this. He had four people that loved him and believed that Jesus could bring him new life, that Jesus could heal him. And they wanted to bring their friend to Jesus. And they weren't going to be stopped. You know, they weren't going to get up there and get there and just be like, oh man, oh well, crowd, we, we missed it, sorry. Probably not God's will today. And, and I love that they were so creative. They thought outside the box. They wanted to bring their friend to Jesus and they were creative. They put their minds together. They, they thought outside the box and they broke social convention. They didn't care that people were yelling at them. You know, and you know what? I'm sure they thought, we don't care. We'll pay for the roof. We'll fix the roof. It doesn't matter what the cost is. We want to bring our friend to Jesus. What about us? Church, I'm talking to you. What about us? Are we ready to tear the roof off? Do we want to bring those around us who are the walking dead to come to see the only one can change their life. Hey, I know there's probably a cost. There might be some awkwardness in this cost. But I want to ask you, and I'm asking all of us, who are we seeking to bring to Jesus because we know that he is their only hope? Look, there was four men, and I just want to give you four different ways you can bring somebody to Jesus. I'm talking to you, church, just for a second here. Number one, you can be ready to, to, to share the good news of Jesus. You should be ready, you know? So that when you're with a friend and it's over lunch and, and, it, and it gets kind of serious and you say, you know, I, I know that you're wondering if there's more to life and I want to let you know there is so much more to life. There's a God who created you and there's a God who's come down and he has died for you. You can go the Romans road. You can do Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, separation from the very source of life, but the free gift is eternal life in Jesus Christ. You go Romans 10, 9, and 10. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. You can be saved. You can be rescued from that barrier between you and God, and you can know that you belong to him. You can be your own Billy Graham. You can be ready, and we should be ready for those opportunities. You know, what else can you do? You know what? You might be like the guy in, in, in John 10. John 10 is the blind man. And Jesus comes and he heals this blind man. And when he gets healed, this guy's like, woo! And he starts, wow, you know, I can see. And he's like, I once was blind. I met Jesus and now I see. 
And then sure enough, he starts getting all the skeptics. Well, wait, what are you saying theologically? He goes, he goes, look, I don't know about any of that. All I know is I once was blind, I met Jesus, and now I can see. But what about the dinosaurs? What, I don't know. I know that I once was blind, I met Jesus, and now I can see. You can just share what Jesus has done in your life. You know, that's your testimony. That's the second way. The third way is you can be one of those people at work that is the prayer person. It's like, how can I pray for you? You know, like, oh, oh, okay. Then they might be like, I don't, I don't know. You know, and they just go on their way. And you might ask it a couple more times. But you know, everybody at some point in their life hits a rough patch. And they're, you know, and they're not going to go to their friends that they're clubbing with and they're partying. They're going to go to you, that prayer person. And that will begin a certain kind of conversation which they can realize their need for God. Be that prayer person. And the final fourth way is that you can be somebody that invites. You can invite. You know, right here on Good Friday, we are going to have a walkthrough that gives a visual presentation of what Jesus has done for us. You know, and, and last year, we had 200 people come in off the street and they got to see what Jesus Christ did for them on the cross. And you can, you know, and you can invite a friend. Now, there's a difference between an invite and a non-vite. Let me tell you the difference between an invite and a non-vite. An invite is, you know what? We have this cool thing. It's all this global art, different Christian people. And it's, it's all about what Good Friday is about. It's super cool. You know what? Why don't we get lunch? I'll, get, I'll pick up lunch, and then we'll go over to this thing. It's, it's coming up on this date. Let's, let's meet at 12. That's called an invite. Here's an invite. You know, someday I'd love for you to come to my church. And someday we'll never come. That's a non-vite. So there's four ways that you can be one of these men, ready to carry your friend to Jesus. That's these four men. They're examples to us. And they're up on that roof. Remember, they're up on that roof and they're looking down. You know, here's Jesus. Everybody's looking up at him, right? And then you think about this. Now, here's Jesus. You know, he was interrupted in his talking. You know, all this chaos happened. All this dust came down. Here's this guy, you know. And, and you gotta ask, like, what was Jesus doing when all this happened? And I can't help but believe that when this happened, that Jesus just had a big smile on his face. Like, wow. Yeah, throughout the Gospels, people that are neutral towards Jesus, kind of apathetic towards Jesus, Jesus just sends them along. But when you see people in the gospel who are climbing a tree, you know, they're breaking into a dinner party, you know, where they're pushing through the crowd just to touch Jesus, Jesus loves that. And I'm sure Jesus just loved this. I'm sure he loved it. And there he is with this man and, and all this, and they've done everything to heal this, and this man can get his legs back. And, and then Jesus says something in this very obvious pregnant moment. He says something, and it's kind of odd. And Jesus, when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Thanks, Jesus. The friends up on the roof, wait, what did he say? I thought he was going to say, stand and rise and walk. What's he talking about sin for? He, he, he needs his legs back. This is, a, this is a no-brainer, Jesus. What's wrong with you, Jesus? Are you missing a cue? Are you just socially awkward? You don't understand what's going on around you, you know? Are you tone deaf? Don't you see what this guy needs? Your sins are forgiven? Really? Come on, Jesus. And if you're a non-Christian this morning, you might say, you know, this is exactly what I don't like about Christianity. This is exactly it. 
It's all about sin. It's all about morality. And you don't deal with real issues in the world that need to be addressed. But I want to say this. If that's what you're thinking, you need to read more of the Gospels. Because Jesus is, the reason that whole group is there is because Jesus has been healing like crazy. Jesus has been dealing with people with mental illness. Jesus has been touching people. Jesus cares if you're sick. Obviously, Jesus cares. If you've come in here today and you've got a physical ailment, if you're dealing with something, if you're dealing with cancer, if you're dealing with some kind of physical problem, fibromyalgia, or you know, we go down the list, lupus, whatever it is, you know, Jesus cares. That's clearly the picture. And the picture in the Bible is that Jesus has big plans to renovate everything to renovate cosmically, to bring everything underneath his healing power. That's Jesus' plan. That's clear in the Bible. So why does Jesus, at this very obvious and pregnant moment, say, son, your sins are forgiven? Why does he do that? I think it's because this. I think it's because Jesus is cutting through an illusion that this man has and that I have and that you have. And the illusion is this. If we can only get our circumstances lined up right, everything will be okay. See, he's challenging this idea that if your circumstances are fixed, your life will be fixed. Dak Shepard, who is a comedian and an actor, also has a podcast, and maybe you've seen him act in different things, but there's this one little section in his podcast where he said something that I thought was quite interesting. He says this. I told myself, if I got some money, I'd be happy. If I got the right girl, I'd be happy. If I got the right job, I'd be happy. And suddenly, I was lucky enough to get all those things and realize I wasn't happy. And I can imagine that this man right here is thinking to himself, if only I can walk, then I'll be happy. Most of you can walk. Are you happy? What is our greatest need? What is the thing that Jesus came to offer us? You know, some think that Jesus came to offer us a moral compass. Some people think that Jesus came to give us an example of being loving. Some people think that Jesus came to give us a rationale for carrying out uh, loving acts toward the marginalized and those who need help. And some people think that Jesus provides a sense of purpose. And you know, Jesus does give us those things, all those things and more. But these are byproducts of why Jesus came. The thing that Jesus came most fundamentally to address is our need to have our sins forgiven. That's what he came for. And again, maybe you're saying, sins forgiven. But let me talk to you. If you're like rolling your eyes right now at that, let me talk to you for a second and ask you a question. You know, if you have a falling out with your spouse, with a really good friend, with a family member, and then you go through a really nice day, you know what? You know that in the back of your head, all those good circumstances don't matter because of the significance of the relationship with that person and the fact that there's been a falling out. But how much more does that happen when you do not have a correct relationship with the living God who made you and knows you better than you can ever know yourself, the one who you were made for, if that relationship isn't right, nothing's right. Do 
Jesus will never give us the illusion that if we get our circumstances all back together, then our life will be okay because there is something so much better than this that he offers. Now, um, uh, the friends were not the only people that were surprised when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. You know, as we saw today, there's some scribes here that are pretty upset about this. Look what it says. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who are these guys? They're the quality control from Jerusalem. You know, when Jesus became really popular, you know, the, 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 probably the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and scribes, they sent these guys down to inspect Jesus, to make sure that he's kosher, that what he's doing is lining up with what the Old Testament talks about. And so they are like listening to him and suddenly he's like forgiving people's sins. And they're like, this is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And you know what? They're absolutely right. They're absolutely right. If I borrow Josh's car and then I total it, and then the next day, you know, I don't know who, John or, or Ryan or, uh, you know, uh, Wisdom comes up to me. He's like, hey, you know what? I just forgive you for totaling Josh's car. Well, it's not her prerogative to forgive me. Josh needs to forgive me. It's his car. You have nothing to do with this. And so when Jesus is forgiving sins, these scholars know, because they've read the Old Testament, that that is God's prerogative. It's not even the Messiah's prerogative. Only God can forgive sins. And so like, whoa, 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 what are you doing here? You're making yourself out to be God. Now, this is the part where I just want to laugh because you meet people like, I'll name names, Unitarians and Jehovah's Witnesses and Muslims. They'll be like, Jesus never claimed to be God. But when you actually read the Bible, you find out the people that were interacting with Jesus were like, he's claiming to be God. And you know what? They're going to kill him for that. So there was never any mistake that Jesus is making himself out to be equal with God. And so they're angry about this. But there's another reason that they're angry. You see, there was already a certain kind of set of procedures in place to have sins forgiven. And if you go back and you read the book of Leviticus, okay, you'll find out that there was an entire process. If you committed a sin, you'd have to go to the temple. You'd have to take the life of an innocent animal. That animal would, would be killed. The blood would be poured out. And that innocent would suffer in your place in order to have that sin forgiven. And then, because you couldn't know all of your possible sins, in Leviticus 16, you can read it, there was something called the Day of Atonement, where all the sins that hadn't been covered, because you can't remember all your sins, the high priest would take another innocent and lay his hand on the head of that innocent, and then that innocent would be slaughtered, and you could know at that moment that all your sins were taken care of. There's already a whole procedure in place. But notice what Jesus is doing. He's bypassing all of that. He's completely disregarding that. You know, this man has not gone through a process of purity. Uh, you know, he hasn't gone to the temple. Like, I can't even walk to the temple. You know, what has he actually done to get his sins forgiven? You know what he's done? He got lowered down. What he's done is he's looked at Jesus. I mean, I don't know if he even said hi. He was just like, I'm here. I need help. He just looked at Jesus. You're all I got. I need you. That's all. He looked to Jesus. That's it. That's it. That's, he didn't lift a finger. He just looked to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, talks about how he became a Christian. It's a really cool story. He uh, 
<laughs> he got up and decided, I think I'm going to go to church. I want to explore this Christianity stuff. And he gets to church. Uh, well, he's going on his way to church, and there's a major snowstorm. Pick, picked the wrong day to go to church. So he can't even get to the church that he thought he was going to go to. He turns down a street, and then he runs across this little chapel. And he goes in that chapel, and the snow is so bad that the preacher can't make it to the chapel. And so uh, all there is is there's one guy that made it. He's, he, like, makes shoes, and he's sitting in the front row. Get ready. This might happen to you if one of us never makes it, okay? So uh, the text that day that was supposed to be preached on is Isaiah 45, 22, look unto me and be saved. And so this, this cobbler gets up here, and he gets up here, and there's Spurgeon. There's like three people, you know. <laughs> it's one of, those, one of those church services where you know the preacher's talking to you because there's only you and two other people, right? <laughs> okay? And he says this, Isaiah 45, 22, look unto me and be saved. It says, look. Now look and don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. A man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But you'll never find any comfort in yourself until you look to Christ. And Charles Spurgeon says, for the first time I looked to Christ, and the darkness went away in the sunshine. If you've never looked to Christ, you can look to him. You can be that man that knows that you just need Jesus, and all you can do is look to him. And he sees that. He knows that. Now, these scribes were thinking some things, okay? Um, and Jesus is aware of their thoughts. Look what it says. And immediately, Jesus was perceiving in a spirit that they thus questioned within themselves. This guy's blaspheming. And said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? So Jesus here, he, you know, this is, this is a whole other sermon. Like, Jesus can see our hearts, right? If you're sitting there thinking that guy's bald head is really shiny, you better start whistling Jesus loves me because he can see you're thinking that, okay? All right, it's a joke, all right, okay. So anyways, yeah, I mean, he can see our hearts, right? He knows what's going on. That's one of the reasons why it's so good to be in a relationship with Jesus because it's the only one that will actually know you deeply, fully, Okay? But look what it says. Jesus here gives this very interesting question. He, Jesus says, which is easier to say to this paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk. I mean, Jesus is saying, you know, talk is cheap. Yeah, I could just say this. And he's right. You know, if you say your sins are forgiven, okay, your sins are forgiven. How are we going to know the man's sins are forgiven? Well, we're going to have to wait until judgment day to find if it worked, Right? But if someone says, rise, take up your bed and walk, well, that guy's either going to be carried out of there or he's going to walk out of there. And you can know. And so it's pretty simple. And so Jesus here is saying, let me give you some compulsory evidence so that you can know. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately, he picked up his bed, and he went out before them all. So they were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Why did Jesus heal? Why did he do it? To electrify the crowd? Did he do it in order to make people just so amazed and so people, oh, we've never seen anything like this, you know, get more followers and more, make a bigger circus? 
Jesus healed so we can know his redemptive purposes. Let me make it a little more specific. Jesus healed so that you and I can know that he can do something that no one else can do and you have no other recourse to get. And that is that Jesus can remove the barrier between you and the God that you have sinned against. Jesus can free that up. Jesus can make it so that the only mind that knows us perfectly has forgiven us totally so we can be embraced completely. That's what he did. That's why he was healing. That's why he's showing these signs. The Bible is clear that one day we are all going to face God. And the question you want to ask is, will he welcome me on that day? The only face that you ultimately want to welcome you, will that face welcome you on that day? And you can look to Christ and you can know that he has forgiven your sins. At this time, I will invite our band up. We are gonna conclude our service this morning by, by coming to this practice. This is a practice that Jesus gave his disciples. You know, why did Jesus give this practice to his disciples? So that we will not forget the reason that he came. When Jesus asked this question, by the way, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? You know, at first sight, it seems very apparent. Like, which is easier to say? You know, your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Well, it's harder to say your sins are, rise up and walk. I mean, that seems pretty obvious. But if you think about it for a second, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And God created everything, Right? God created the universe, and he did it effortless, effortlessly. God created legs effortlessly. You know, when God created everything, the lights in heaven didn't even dim. You know, boom. But what would it take for Jesus to be able to say, your sins are forgiven? How would that be in terms of accomplishing it? What would that require? How hard would that be to pull off? Well, we know how hard that was to pull off. You know, Philippians 2 tells us that God had to rip open heaven. He had to come down in the form of a servant, that he was born in a nasty animal trough to impoverished parents, that he lived a life where he was tempted just like we all are, yet he did not sin. He lived a perfect life. And then we see him in Gethsemane, and he's crying out, Father, is there some other way that this can be done? And the answer is there's not. And then we know that he was betrayed by his friends, that he was beaten, that he was crucified. And there up on that cross, we hear the most painful words in all of scripture. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here the Bible gets very mysterious, but it lets us know that what he went through was a hell bigger than we can ever imagine. And he did that so that we can know that our sins are forgiven. And this meal right here, it points us to that. Every time we do it, it points us to that. This bread is his body that was sacrificed for us. This cup is his blood that was shed for us. And if you don't know if your sins are forgiven, you can come forward. And as you come forward and you look at what he's done for you, and you say, I need that. And you put it inside of you. That is you saying, Jesus, I need what you did for me. I need you to forgive my sins. I need you. I need to know that there's nothing between me and God and, I, and I'm putting my trust in you. Here I am, Jesus. I'm putting my trust in you. I'm turning to you. 
Now look, I'm just gonna be really honest. Have you put your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you done that? You know, 2,000 years ago, God ripped open heaven so that you can know that your sins are forgiven. And if you've never put your trust that what, in trust in what Jesus did on the cross was for you, that he did that for you, you can do that today. Let's pray. Gracious God, you created heaven and earth and everything around us. You made us in your image. And even when we fell into sin, you didn't stop. You tore the roof of heaven open and you came in the person of Jesus to provide for us a way of salvation. You became that Passover lamb, the greater innocence, so no other blood would need to be spilled. You were sacrificed for our salvation, for our forgiveness of sins, crucified so that we might have everlasting life. We thank you, Jesus, that you did more than talk. You took up that cross that we might be freed from our sin, that we might become your beloved children, your sons and your daughters. And we are so